You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And today we're hanging out with Chris Thurman, who is a lecturer and also an author and a columnist as well. And excellent at all of those roles. And uh, we haven't had anyone to show in a long time. Associate Professor and Head of the English Department at Wits University. Uh, why didn't I know that? I My friends are such overachievers, but I know that they're, they're head of department. Bit that's a that's purely a, f- a functionary role. It's not a it's not a title oh, with any status. Humble as ever, it it's m- okay. makes you an administrator. No, it's I will name drop. My friend is the head of the department. I can get you in. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much for coming in. Always a pleasure. So the conversation I wanted to have with you and with Chris, and I told you this morning, but maybe you forgot, is interesting, memorable characters from works of fiction. And I haven't yet read uh, Stephen Boyke's latest work. I will, because he's brilliant. But I saw the beginnings of a review, and then I stopped reading the review because I didn't want you to uh, tell me what you think of the book, although it was a favorable review. And one of the things that the beginnings of this review mentioned is how particularly good Stephen is at uh, creating characters. And Mm. there's some quotes from him, because the journalist was also in conversation with him for that piece, how he doesn't obsess in the first instance about narrative and plot, but a good character is really, really important to create as an author. And I immediately thought, oh, wow, who are some of my favorite characters, good or bad? They don't mm. have to be likable for that matter. Mm. And uh, that's the conversation I want to have. So why don't you call in as you listen to Chris and to me and tell us who are some of your favorite characters Uh, from works of fiction, contemporary, historical ones. They've stayed with you. They can be likable, unlikable, or interestingly complex. 011-883-0702. Talk into that for me, Chris. Character is important. Obviously, ideally, you want everything as a writer, compelling um, plots and narrative and what have you. But character, a particular character, can be such an important uh, creation. Yeah, I mean, when um, we were, when I was thinking in preparation for coming on on the show about my own reading habits and practices, I've realised that I think when I was younger, I used to have a much more meaningful relationship with fictional characters. It was a kind of immersive experience to my reading, um, which allowed that. And I realise now that my relationship with text, maybe because of my my professional. Um, kind of context has become a lot more extractive mm, <laughs> you know, so mm. I sort of want to uh, take out of text it might, you know it might be a, a formal aesthetic response it might be an ideological or political one um, but it's less uh, kind of immersed in that contract of, of believing that in, in the world that has been created by an author so it's been a good challenge for me to revisit that the centrality of, of your relationship your sympathetic or antagonistic relationship let's with throw in some examples I mean you, you, there were so many that you thought of I mean talking about when we are kids um, yeah, I, the number of characters, I think of the old man in the sea, mm. um, to kill a mockingbird. Pick, pick one, maybe an earlier one from your earlier reading habits and talk to a character that have stuck with you. So let's go with to, to kill a mockingbird, actually. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I guess we, most of us uh, read a text like that at school or as part of a – you know, our parents pass it down and say you should read this. Um, and so, you know, a character like uh, Atticus Finch uh, stuck out for me and, and uh, in my memory anyway sticks out as, you know, this figure who represents – some kind of grand, noble, you know, um, political, heroic set of virtues. And what interests me about that actually is not so much uh, my relationship with that text now, but the sub, the, the, the well, it, it wasn't a sequel. It wasn't written as a sequel, but it was published uh, many, many decades later, um, to kill a, I'm sorry, go set a watchman, um, yes. in which, uh, Harper Lee, 
or her, her character at least um revisits this question of of you know the father figure and uh, and what was once seen as as a, a progressive and and powerful and noble political position that has be, that has lapsed uh, and to me that speaks very powerfully to a lot of characters and political figures we see in South mm. Africa today who you know 30 40 years ago meant one thing uh, and today mean and enact a very different role in society today i was very lazy in my own preparation for this conversation despite being excited by the question uh, partly because I knew that uh, you're going to do a brilliant job as the expert guest. <laughs> but I'll, I'll throw one in the mix as well, and uh, then we'll invite listeners to, to do so also. Mine are predictable because uh, anyone who listens to this segment of the show regularly knows my obsession with James Kutsia and uh, with Cello Daker and also with James Baldwin. So my examples come from those three authors for, yeah. for today's occasion. My favorite Kutsia character... That that has stuck with me is Michael K. Okay, in Life and Times of Michael K. and and I was trying to to reflect on why that is. Part of it has to do with the skill that I like in Kutsia that he also gets flack for. That Michael K. is one of his most elusive characters, and so I don't have a clear picture in my head mm. of what Michael K. looks like. Mm. A fully formed 360 degree identity mm. as you do other characters that you can describe fully mm. because there's something about Michael K that's very Kutsia-esque in terms of how underdeveloped the character is but despite that Michael K has stuck with me in that elusiveness mm. you know so so it's 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 a bit contradictory and I don't know why I like that that slightly elusive description I mean obviously there are other elements to Michael K uh kind of like very simple being with a core set of beliefs, helps out the mom that is gravely ill, finds himself institutionalized, simple life as a gardener, and a weird kind of freedom that he enjoys in isolation and not quite being embedded socially. So there's stuff there that I could trot out if I was writing an essay for the head of yeah. department of English at Wits. <laughs> but but if, I, if I'm being completely dishonest, it's not the, the higher grade fancy description of the details of how he fits into the story mm. that makes him memorable for me. It is actually the elusiveness. Yeah. I think that's the great appeal of a lot of characters, that enigmatic, uh, mysterious quality. We can't quite pin them down. Um, and I suppose if you were th speaking about it crudely, you'd say, uh, if, we, if we're thinking cinematographically, you, you can't convert that into a, a movie character. Yes. You know, that's, that, yeah, that's I don't of, know how that would work. <laughs> um, whereas, whereas some literary characters do lend themselves more to a, a, a sort of you know, tangible, concrete, uh, or they're represented in such a way that we have a more vivid picture of them in our, in our minds. That's a very and so, good point. Sometimes I think that relates partly to the relationship between the author and the and the character. So in Kutsia's case, I think the, the achievement of that text is that uh, Kutsia is creating somebody so utterly different to him. Mm. Um, maybe mm. not existentially, but I guess materially in that world that, that, he's, that mm. he's created. Um, and he, he embraces that distance and he doesn't try to, to close the distance. So Michael K remains mysterious to us because he's mysterious to Kutsia. Mm. Um, whereas there are other characters that I think speak more closely to the life experiences or the concerns of that an author. Right. And that can yeah. create a different kind of vividness. So, mm. you know, you were talking about Dekka. If we think about someone like Azure in 13 Cents or... Um, absolutely. Uh, or uh, Tsepo in Quiet, Quiet Violence and Dreams. dreams. Absolutely. I mean, There's a sense of the... the yeah. Not not exactly the, sure. the, the same traumatic experiences, but equivalent traumatic experiences to what Dekka himself um, had encountered, you know, 
institutional I think that's otherwise. true autobiographically. I also think one of the reasons why, and that was going to be my second example, you'll give us yours next, why Tsepo is one of my favorite characters and why I think that book is like a Bible amongst young black readers in mm. particular and, 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 and our generation of South Africans because Tsepo is your first black friend as a white dude who went to a Model C school. Mm. He's also you, the road student that smoked way too much marijuana on New Street and ended up trying to make your, your way through advertising in Cape Town. Yeah. And, and, and so I think Tsepo is memorable because the mental health challenges, mm. the struggle to be this multicultural person that fits in everywhere from the township to OBS and what have you. I think there it's just a very clear description of the character that fit into sort of the post apartheid experiment with um, with multiculturalism yeah but but not with the character arc that leads towards uh, achievement or culmination no. or redemption no it's not a sort of bildungsroman no. in in that in that mode um you know you were writing recently about Siakolisi and other prominent south african figures and how they sort of escape the trajectory that we could expect of many people who've had their early life experiences and maybe what we see in in a, a, a writer like Dekka is a resistance to the temptation of That's of right. redemption or escape absolutely um, which is not to say that there isn't a great appeal in in particularly if we're thinking about autobiographical fiction or, or maybe uh, autobiography that that kind of blurs the boundaries of fiction um you know i, I had on my list um Eskem Pachlele as himself <laughs> in Down Second Avenue, um, which is a memoir that borrows certain, certain kind of fictional devices, I guess we could say. And for me, he represents an interesting generation. Uh, maybe we shouldn't call them the drum writers, but you could think of, uh, uh, Temba or Bloke Marisane or Nat Nakasa who, who wrote themselves into a kind of, uh, fictional, um, hmm. character, uh, a, a way of being, uh, which was literary, yes. even though they were writing about their own lived experience. Experience. And that to me is, you know, that, that's the, the in, we, instead of talking about friction and distance between character and author, there we can talk about the effect of a kind of uncomfortable proximity. That's, um, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Okay, so you pick up the phone. You don't have to be as brainy as Chris. Just tell us what characters from works of fiction or other works, I mean, we don't have to be so uh, hung up on the genre, have stuck with you. Likeable, unlikable. We all have such characters, often in film, for example. But I know you read, so I want to know from your reading history, what characters have, have you dragged through with you into adulthood? Oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two. Offense, good morning. Thanks for calling in. Good morning, Sirius. Um, I think you just jogged my memory a little bit when you made reference to J.M. Kutsia. And the character that sticks out very clearly in my mind would be that of uh, Professor David Leary um, in the book uh, Disgrace. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just think uh, you know he, you know his his sexual uh, deviance, um, you know, sort of sends his life into a tailspin. Um, and the whole time you're reading throughout the book, you you just sort of rooting for him to sort of get his life back together and to sort of waiting for redemption which never comes and then you see the complexity you know between this character that he's created as this lecturer and being uh, infallible and being, being lecturous. such a figure mm-hmm. to, to his students mm. and then mm. in his own private life how everything just unravels and the redemption just never comes. 
Did you like that character, or is that not even the right kind of question to ask about him? Um, I mean, your description is pitch perfect, but just out of interest, what is your personal offensive response to that character? Likeable, or you just have a sort of anthropological interest in this character with all his weirdness? I think he's not a likable character, but I think you want to find some good in the character. You want to sort of humanize the character. You want to sort of understand why he made the decisions that he made. And you also want to understand the context in which, you know, um, his life was unraveling. And I guess in that way, you know, I sort of sympathize with the character more than like the character. Okay, beautifully put. That's a character about which many a fascinating and sometimes uh, divisive mm. uh, university seminar has been hosted, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. I think, look, um, Lurie, if we're talking about proximity between author and character, and we want to give our, our most sympathetic reading of Kutsia, I guess, Lurie fits into that, that um, not to give a taxonomy, but a kind of category of characters where you could say we respond to them either because they are so different to us or perhaps sometimes because we say that could be me, right? So if, if the response to Dacre from some readers might be, you know, that is me, yes. um, I'm very intrigued by those characters who act as a kind of warning. We sort of lured into a sympathy with them and then we realize that they, at a certain point where we can't always put our finger on it, you know, lose uh, a moral high ground or lose, lose a kind of ethical framework. Um, is it pathetic morally for you, as, when you uh, this character? Uh, yeah, I think, I think Lurie's, um, is a kind of, he's a laughable figure, um, that, and we should never quite feel sorry for him. I think he always needs to remain somehow a little bit risable, um, uh, never quite reprehensible. There's some element of insight there or critique, but he's a man who just doesn't understand how it is that he doesn't as understand. A, as a literary creation, is he a character that was well-formed by Kutsir. I'm asking that partly because I've had many debates over the years, including some of our mutual friends, mm. who can't stand that character. Mm. I thought that the character was not recognizable, a pathetic device through which to explore aspects of anxiety, power abuse, and mm. broader race questions about white people's place in the country. I like the character, kind of like the same way offensive as, not, not in the sense of like-like, but interesting. But, but I've had many, many mates that I respect in terms of reading text closely, who find the character not just unlikable but almost unrecognizable. I always thought there was an unkind description. Well, I think um, it depends on how, if you want to put him in a kind of literary lineage. I mean, Kutsia's writing in Luria, I think, about uh, as a warning of what happens when you f- fall into the romance uh, of your relationship with texts. You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of going back to, I suppose, uh, Cervantes and Don Quixote. What happens if you embrace text without any kind of critical distance? Mm-hmm. So, so Lurie is, is so enamored of his romantic writers and he, you know, kind of has placed Byron on a pedestal and he can't really re- re- separate himself from Byron. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about characters who you could say, uh, warn us against that kind of n- naivety, mm. a kind of willful blindness that then actually becomes morally repugnant when it has an impact on others. Um, have you read Lacuna, by the way? No. You really should. By yes, the Fiona, Fiona, yeah. It is stunning. C. Paul, good morning. Hey, you see that? How are you? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Uh, thanks. Hey, you see that? Um, 
من نبای کارکتر دوان پای خیلیتی مویده ایسی بوگست دیگ اوه یا یا پای هی پیسونی پای دیده ایچ آی پای هم ام یا ایچ آی پای پاوکل این لکی دیگ بگاز بیدیکالی یو لکت ده هولتنگ of the, the, the HIV difference, so it was just brilliant. That so sounds fascinating. Yeah, it is. Wow, that sounds amazing. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I haven't read the book. It's one of those books one it's not allowed to say you haven't read. Um, and you agree with Sibo? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's devastating to kind of personify HIV AIDS and to, to give this thing that we always uh, try to think about scientifically or sociologically or medically or economically, if you're Tabo Mbegi, um, <laughs> you, you know, uh, suddenly is a living thing that has yeah. that has agency and is antagonistic and malicious. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, a very weird way. It, it does, or she does, or whatever the agenda might be. Mm. You know, in 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 a country with the HIV rates that we have, that's often you often wonder whether HIV is a third partner with you if you're with, with a partner. Yeah, so we say, you know, HIV, uh, you know, some people would say HIV is a killer and other people say it doesn't have to be a killer because, you know, and, yeah. um, and so we, really we're starting really already to talk about this. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm <laughs> Let's take a little bit of a break there. I don't want to because I hang on to every words of Chris. Uh, Vincent will come back to you in a second. We do, however, have to make money. Otherwise, we don't have a radio show. The Literature Corner. Okay, we're talking about memorable characters. Uh, they don't have to be likable. Uh, Bandila says, my fictional character fave is Junior uh, or Ju- I don't know how one actually pronounces because I've only ever read it in Juno Diaz's uh, stories. He grapples with complexity of being a working class immigrant young man while navigating love, vulnerability and how to break the cycle of traumas that lead to a mist, to lead us to mistreat others. I totally agree with you, Bandila. And I was a latecomer uh, to this man's work. Uh, sadly, I got to his work after uh, all the revelations about his uh, horrific sexual predation of um, some younger um, students and other authors that he had worked with. But the quality of the writing, I totally agree with you. Chris, the sports writer, is another text uh, that, that I'm not familiar with. Speak to me about that and, and why that's also on your list. Yeah, so a character called Frank Bascom. Um, I've realized that uh, I mean, we don't want to speak about it too crudely in demographic terms, but a lot of the characters that I I was just saying to you during the break, I have this moment of recognizing with terror that I have identified with them and that the author actually uh, wants me to be less than sympathetic towards them. They're usually white, me- <laughs> they're usually white men of a, of a certain kind of predisposition, slightly dreamy, slightly moody, slightly alienated and lost and lonely. Um, and and uh, they would persuade you that, uh, you know, whatever their actions might be, those are justifiable because of their own internal suffering. Um, and so I think, yeah, a character like Frank Bascom's interesting that way um so he and the, and uh, it's part of a, a trilogy the sports writer trilogy where uh he's kind of a guy drifting through life he's a writer had relationships that have not worked out uh, fad, sad family backgrounds uh, children who've died and so you kind of you you sympathize with him and yet um he's also just a bit of an asshole like he refuses to see his impact in the in the world uh, another character i was going to mention also south african um uh, figures Aubrey Till from Ivan Vladislavich's The Restless Supermarket. Um, 
he's an editor. It's the sort of early mid 1990s, and he's a guy who likes control. So mm-hmm. he's a wordsmith. He's very playful with text. A lot of Vladislavich's characters are like that, and so you respond to that uh-huh. in the writing. And yet, he's this narrow-minded, petty man who refuses to acknowledge that the world around him is changing and that people like him are completely irrelevant. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really good, uh, you know, challenge to, to as a reader. You confront those moments of of thinking, I, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. I too could be an Aubrey Till, you know, a narrow, <laughs> uh, claustrophobic, you know, white life who's yeah. who's interested in text but doesn't want to see the real world around him changing. Vincent, thanks for holding on. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead. Welcome to the conversation. Hi. Thank you very much. Um, I really enjoy the show. Um, I was uh, going through my mother's garage the other day and I stumbled across a book that I read when I was a teenager, um, Kelly Armstrong, Tales of the Other World. Oh. I haven't read okay. in years. Yeah. And um, mm. there's a character in there, his name is Clay, and basically he's this young boy who is like lost in the world and alone. And I read the book again and I just wanted to make a mention on this that it's it's so strange when you read a book and then read it again years later and mm. you see how your um, perception of the world has changed yeah. because the book sort of remains a constant. You know, of the book is what the book is, but your perception of the storyline and the characters change. Where he was such a um, underhanded character, mm. now I read it and I sort of saw mm. a great mobility in him. You that know, so. So I just thought that that was, uh, you know, quite, quite interesting. As, as your life changes, your perception to uh, what you're reading and what is around you changes as well. Yeah. That is such a beautiful addition to the conversation. Mangoba and Jill, I'm going to take your calls as well. I'm going to abuse my friendship with Chris and keep him for 10 minutes. Before we take a news headlines break, just speak into what Vincent is saying. That's interesting too, isn't it? Because the relationship with all the characters each of us have mentioned on social yeah. media and on air, um, 10, 15 years from now, 10, 15 years ago, might have looked different relative to what we bring to reading. Absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, uh, D.H. Lawrence said that the, what um, kind of qu- is one of the criteria for the way that our sympathy ebbs and flows when we're reading texts uh, can often be quite a gossipy, judgy assessment of who's a good person, who's a bad person. And I think maybe that's often when we're young, we respond to goodies and baddies, to, you know, to, to villainy or to nobility. That's true. Um, and as we get older, we revisit that and we see, you know, the kind of nuances that creep into character motivation. Mm. Um, so I think that's very interesting. I mean, sometimes the opposite can occur. I, uh, um, talking about, you know, texts we read when we were younger, um, on the Shrine, a story of an African farm. Uh, when I read that, Waldo and Lindell, who are these two kind of, Dreamy, ambitious, uh, intelligent, but, uh, you know, stuck in the middle of the nowhere Karoo, uh, characters. I was, uh, sympathized with them because they, they were sort of struggling to make sense of life. You know, it was, mm. it was tough, but they were going to read books and they were going to go out into the world and figure <laughs> it out. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, reading them when I was, when I was younger myself as a sort of late teen, early twenties, um, that I identified with that very strongly. And I read them now and I think, well, Shrina was a teenager herself practically when she was writing it and it's all a bit sort of, you know, narcissistic and navel gazing. <laughs> I don't actually think that, but it, you know, you do it's have those. growing those, up. You've grown yeah. up. I, I, I have similar examples of that inversion in the opposite direction from, because the, that caller's example is wonderful how you see someone in flat negative terms and then suddenly you see them yes. as something more interesting. Yeah. For me, it is with, um, Atlas Shrugged. 
Oof. Shiv is down my spine. But I loved Atlas Shrugged as a first year student. That text now, and I'm like, oh my God, this completely heartless human being and underlying philosophy. That would be one case. And then, despite my love affair with him as a writer, I used to be the person around the Bri who will defend James Kutsia's characters from moral criticism till the cows come home. (laughs) But of course, that was hashtag before I was woke. The Literature Corner. 24 minutes before noon, we are with Chris Thurman, uh, who's a writer and a lecturer, professor at Wits University, and we're just talking about memorable characters in works of fiction. Mangoba, thanks for holding on. Uh, hello, hello, Jeff. How are you and the professor? We well, thank Very you. Well, thanks. Oh, okay. Uh, you see, uh, the character that fascinates me has to be Tom Riddle from Harry Potter. He's also known <laughs> as Dr. Mm. That, that guy, you see him, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, there's this professor that he, he goes to Riddle to ask about how to form helicox. Helicox is something that somebody or witches or wizards can split your soul. And this guy is asking this question, but it's based on theory. And you know how good uh, J.K. Rowling writes the book? Né? You can link that with reality about when you go to university and you have about to do your honors or something, you can link with that, that uh, something can be possible in theory, but practically it has not been done yet, but mm. how to do your research. And so according to me, the way I see the book, uh, Tom Riddle goes and does much research on the subject of Holocaust, and then that is how he's able to split his soul. Stunning. I think you've got some postgrad students here. You're going to sign up on and my radio Harry, show. A lot of Harry Potter fans <laughs> who are nodding their head, heads, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. He's reminding me of, I don't know what your metric set work was. You would have been what, Ian Gauteng. Yeah. We had in the Eastern Cape, Huck Finn. Oh, yeah. But what I loved about the text, and... Um, I must congratulate myself because even as a lighty in matric, I managed to get some of the layers. I love these texts and Harry Potter's is another example where you can just read it for complete amount of fun and not try and write a think piece about every page. Yeah. But if you want to go there, you can also go there. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, and there are, you know, there are sort of, uh, lessons there. I mean, it's, you know, it's it, not just in the sort of young adult, uh, category. Um, uh, also around not, uh, judging characters, you know, when you Absolutely. first encounter them and to whether they're going to fit into the, mm. the mystique of the goodie mm. or the baddie. Joel, our last caller for today. Welcome to the show. Good day, you CBS and Chris. I hope you're well. Thank you for taking my call. Mm. The other, the last call it took to me because I thought I had to bring a female, a woman writer into the conversation. Yes. And that my, one of the most, a character that stayed with me for years was Ofred from Handmaiden's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was brought to life more recently by the, the TV series, mm-hmm. which Killed me to the bone because it took to extremes um, institutionalizing gender-based violence. Mm. And what is um, it about the character, though, that that had stayed with you, Joel, for for so long? It is the character that she just bided her time, hmm. and then she broke out. But she bided her time. But she put up with the most amazing abuse in the meantime. Mm. 
she was strategic. It was a chilling tale. Um, yeah. In, in fact, I could, uh, if I could jump in there, you'd be interested, I'm, I'm sure, to read uh, the Testaments, uh, which is the the sequel. And there's been some controversy around whether or not it was meriting of the of the Booker or the Joint Booker. And an interesting, um, uh, very critical review of that text that I read pointed out that uh, it's precisely because of the ordinariness uh, and therefore the kind of everyday suffering but also everyday bravery mm. that you encounter in the characters in uh, Handmaid's Tale that's lacking in the Testaments mm. uh, because you have these sort of big characters who are telling the grand, uh, you know, grand narrative arc uh, rather than the than the everyday insignificant. Mm. And I think that's another interesting consideration. Chris, can we end with just one more example? I'm going to take one. If there's another one you want to add, you can. Mm-hmm. But I was really interested to hear you talk about Winnie as a literary character. Yeah, so this is also very narcissistic on my part. I mean, it's, you know, kind of my my ongoing relationship myself, with myself and trying to figure out my place in South Africa through my response to, you know, a contested but obviously hugely important um, person in our history, but also a character in our texts. Mm. So she's a character in her own book, For 91 Days, about her time in uh, solitary confinement. Um She's a character in Njibulo Ndebele's uh, The Cry of Winnie Mandela. Mm. Um, she recently, Sisonkem Semang, The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela, which is not a fictional text. but uh, So I, I think this, this idea of kind of literary exchange, sure. fictional or critical or analytical or otherwise, about our historical figures, mm. um, says something for the value of, of engaging with a character. Um, and thinking about uh, real historical people as characters and, and what that can do for our imaginative Tell sympathy. me a little bit more. I've never thought about that because there's obviously Winnie, the historical human being, mm. and there's Winnie, the representation of the human being. Mm. And if you're setting out to write a work of nonfiction, you presumably want the two to be one and the same thing because uh. truth is important. Um, but then in other works, you you may take some creative license in how you draw on the historical figure mm. in creating the literary character. I mean, that, that's really that's fascinating. I guess, you know, you were talking earlier about uh, ambiguity and the vagueness that attaches to someone like Michael Kay. Mm. There always has to be something enigmatic about the uncertainty o- around, sure. uh, of the, you know, literary creations or artistic creations. I remember some years ago I was watching um, Bongani and Dodana Breen's um, Winnie the Opera. It was the opening night, much excitement. Really interesting, uh, you know, musically impressive and, and in terms of the kind of um, the spectacle of the staging, interesting piece of work. And then uh, Winnie Mandela was in the audience. Marquezella Mandela was in the audience and she was called up on stage afterwards. And the entire audience obviously, you know, went off and was really excited. But there was slightly sort of annoying um, lit crit part of me thought it's almost anticlimactic. To see, you know, she, obviously she's she's a hugely important person, sure. and it's a highlight for many people to see her on stage. But if we think about the artwork, you almost don't want the real life person there, yeah. um, because now the attention is on that actual concrete historical person rather than the kind of artistic creation that we've encountered. Maybe the real author there was Tom Stoppard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Chris Thurman, uh, associate professor, head of English department at Wits University. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you very much. I always enjoy it.